Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is all about the 2015 BBC adaptation of The Go-Between. It's directed by Pete Travis, and it's based on the 1953 novel by L.P. Hartley that goes by the same title. It's about a young boy. He's 12 years old, about to turn 13. His name is Leo Colston. He's from a middle-class background. And in the summer of 1900, he goes to stay at the massive, opulent home of one of his friends, Marcus Maudsley, and he stays at that house during the summer and with Marcus's family, and that summer will change Leo's life forever. While he's there, he becomes the go-between, the messenger, who takes notes between Marcus's sister Marion and the man that she's having a secret forbidden affair with. His name is Ted Burgess, and he's a farmer. They're from very different classes, and it's not really possible for them to be together. And so Leo becomes entangled in their relationship because he takes messages for them so that they can meet each other and, and be together. And a lot of things happen as a result. It's just this really powerful story and haunting story. In this episode, there are full spoilers about the film and the book. It helps if you're familiar with the book or the film because that's what I'm really talking about. But I do want you to know there are spoilers. The book really haunts me. I read it in 2018 for the first time and then I reread it for this episode and it's one of those books that I couldn't get out of my system and I really love this BBC adaptation. It's incredibly dreamy and beautiful but more than that it's emotional and there's a great depth of feeling to it. It's a film about the loss of innocence. It's about class and nostalgia and the devastating wounds of childhood. It's a stunning film, and I'll be talking all about it for you. It also has an all-star cast with Leslie Manville, Vanessa Redgrave, and Jim Broadbent. This is a top-notch BBC production, and it just absolutely is like a dream when you watch it. I, I love it, and I really had to talk about it for the podcast. So I hope that you'll stick around, and that you'll listen to the episode, and that you'll get something out of it. Heredin and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work that I'm doing on a monthly basis and you can access all kinds of rewards and extras including extra episodes and even merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash Films. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash Films. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode, so I want to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Max, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for being patrons and for supporting the work that I do and believing in me. If financial support isn't an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes 
It would really mean a lot to me. I'd love to have more reviews on there. It only takes a few seconds if you want to just do a, a star rating or if you'd actually like to write a full review. Either way, I'd really appreciate it. You can tell your friends and followers about her head in films or you can send me an encouraging message and, enact, and interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Her Head in Films. You can find links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So first, I'm going to talk more generally. I do this, I tend to do this at the beginning of each episode where I have a little segment where I talk about more general things. For today, I'm going to talk about how cinephilia and my obsession with film has been a really therapeutic thing for me and how it's helped me deal and cope with the trauma that I've experienced in my life. After that, I'm going to give you my full analysis of the go-between both the book and this 2015 version of it. So let's get started. episode, I like to take a moment sometimes to talk about more general things. And then sometimes I talk about films that I've watched. It just depends. I think right now I want to talk about something more general, but that's related to films and to cinema. In a lot of ways, I see the podcast as almost like an audio diary. And I think that's important to say because The podcast started in 2016, December 2016, and I just was talking about films in a way that I didn't even think anybody would listen. And I certainly didn't think that I would be doing Her Head in Films more than two years later at this point when I'm recording this. And I still don't totally know why I keep doing it at times, because... I I don't have a huge following. I'm not anybody important in the film space. I'm self-taught. I live in a rural area. I don't go to film festivals. I don't watch all the new releases. I don't write tons of reviews. I'm not in the film space in the conventional way. I don't talk about films in really academic or theoretical ways. I don't know where I really fit in the film landscape, especially online or even with podcasts. But I do see the podcast as more like an audio diary than an actual podcast. And it was much more raw in the beginning. And as it's grown, as it's changed, as it's morphed at times, I've tried to polish it up a little bit. I've tried to make it sound better, you know, have better sound quality and make it sound maybe not professional, but just a little bit better. I think I used to meander a bit more in the beginning, (laughs) in the early episodes, and just kind of go on these tangents. And I still try to do that. It's still important to me to go on those tangents and to meander. But you know, I do like more in-depth notes and more in-depth research now than maybe I did at the beginning. Because I do feel like if I'm going to share these episodes publicly on social media, where anybody could come across them. I want them to sound decent. I want them to sound good. But at the end of the day, Her Head in Films will always be about my subjective experience of cinema and the rawness of of my life and of my thoughts and my feelings. 
And I always try to retain that. And to me, that's the integrity of the show. And it's something that I will always believe in and preserve because to me, it's precious. To me, it is the most important part of the podcast is that I'm talking in an honest, authentic, unfiltered, personal way. It's just who I am. It's how I have to be. And I think social media, I think the internet has changed our lives a lot in that way. I don't know if there is that that authenticity anymore. All of us now are like brands or I, I don't think people are quite as open and honest as they used to be on the internet. If you think about those early days and people doing blogs and people wrote in really confessional open ways. And I feel like that's changed a lot. I think the internet has changed how things are. But her head in films, I think I'm trying to preserve that. I'm always trying to preserve the personal and the intimate and the raw because I think it can be a really rare thing nowadays when everything is so filtered and photoshopped and mediated in some way or manipulated in some way that it's important for me to just hold this microphone and to talk. That's important to me. So much of what I talk about comes from my own life and my own experiences. And I've been thinking lately about my cinephilia or my cinemania, I guess you could call it. Because I think about how a few years, just a few years ago, films were not such a staple of my life. Nowadays, it's almost like, I don't know, it's like a habit. Or it's like a religious practice in a way. You know, there are people who pray every day. There are people who do certain kinds of rituals every single day, no matter how long they take. I remember when I went to college in 2010, and I grew up in in the rural South. I grew up in a smaller town. I think I was sheltered. There was diversity where I lived. There were people of color. There were people of different religions, certainly. It was not necessarily a a homogenous area. But I would say it was probably predominantly white, for sure. Even though I grew up in that sort of insular environment, I was always very curious about the world. And I read a lot. And even at a young age, I liked foreign films and I was interested in social justice stuff and I considered myself a feminist but I I was very sheltered and I remember when I went to college and for the first time I saw Muslim people praying I went into this like large sort of common area where a lot of the students would go and as many of you know Muslims pray five times a day and they pray towards Mecca I still remember seeing these students do that, you know, where they got down on the floor and they were praying. And I found it very moving. The, you know, the commitment that that takes and the dedication that that takes. I thought it was really beautiful. I also remember one time I went to the library, uh, a local library in my town, and I saw these Tibetan monks. There were these men that came out of the library and they had these orange robes on. And it was the first time I had ever seen a Tibetan monk in real life. I had seen him on television and places like that, but never in real life. And I've always sort of been in awe of religious devotion, of people who believe in some kind of higher power, something bigger than themselves. 
even though I'm not able to because I'm an atheist and I pretty much always have been. Even though I was raised in a conservative Christian area, obviously, in the South. But I've always been moved by people's religious devotion, whatever form that it took. And I just never had that in my life. And if you think about it, you know, when you pray five times a day or you pray so once a day or however many times and you think about in religions how there is this thing or multiple things that people do every single day and they engage in it and it's this constant presence of it's this constant presence in their life and I just feel like I never had something like that and I think the closest maybe I ever came was art was books I was a big reader when I was younger and I really loved literature I still do But in a lot of ways, film has sort of supplanted everything. Like film has become this practice that I engage in every day, this habit, this thing that I do every day, where I usually average a film a day. It depends on how I'm feeling in in that moment and whatever I'm going through. But I tend to average a film a day or every other day or sometimes I go through dry spells. It just depends. But it's something that I'm always engaging with. And so I think for me, film in a way has become something akin to spirituality or transcendence. I've talked about that a few times in previous episodes of when you see, for instance, Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc with Renee Falconetti's face. That is a kind of transcendence that you feel. Or seeing Christoph Kieslowski's The Double Life of Veronique. Or Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. You encounter these films and you you connect with some kind of mystery in life. And I think those works of art make you feel overwhelmed by mystery. And maybe overwhelmed by something sacred and I find that film watching for me has almost become a sacred act that it's become a holy act that it's almost akin I guess to like meditation or something that it's something I have to do every day that it's something I have to practice and engage in and that I am really dedicated to I've been thinking about that and why that is I think I think it's for a lot of reasons but I've been thinking lately that perhaps it's connected to my trauma and to my childhood and I think in a way my cinephilia or cinemania I prefer cinemania as a word for it at times although I'm sure there are people out there that watch many more films than I do it's about taking in images that help me forget the images of trauma and pain in my life because I have these images in my head all the time I have these memories of my past that torture me and haunt me and connected to my father's death when I was 16 and I'm 29 now almost 30 a lot of the suffering and the pain that I've gone through the loss the loss of him in particular but also just losing so much Losing him, losing other people, in a way losing my mind. I think in a way maybe I did lose it or I I don't know. I think grief can, I think we can lose our minds through grief. I've just never been the same since he died. And, you know, I've been through so much. 
I've lost him. I've lost other family members. I've struggled with mental illness and agoraphobia and anxiety and depression and poverty and losing my house and just so much has happened the last 12 years of my life. It started with him. It started with that one life-shattering event. And I think that there are things that happen to us that we never get over. That we are just completely and forever mutilated by them. Always. Maybe we find a way to bear it. Maybe we find a way to live with it. But we're never truly the same and we can never, we can never see life the same way again. I think some of us are haunted and deeply wounded. Some people are not like that. I mean, it still shocks me that there are people who are not like that. I know there are people who have lost parents and they've gone on to be productive people in the world. But I'm not one of them. <laughs> I am I am what I am, and my life has been defined by trauma and pain and suffering and grief and loss. These memories and these images that haunt me like the dead body of my father, right? You know, seeing him in a casket or imagining his final moments. Sometimes I do that. Just different things that I've been through. And it's hard to carry those images all the time because they do become like these little films in your head. You know, or I think about when I was told that he was dead or I think about, you know, parts of the funeral, things like that. Or maybe the last time I saw him, you know, all these little films in my head or just my memories, even if they're positive, but they hurt. They harm me because they just are so painful. And I just find that my body and my mind can't bear it at times. And so I have all these images, right? Like this accumulation of images in my head from my past, my memories, all these things that sort of haunt and torment me. And so I have started to wonder if the cinemania is about taking in images that help me forget those other images. Then instead of thinking about my father's dead body... I can think about images from the Tree of Life or the Double Life of Veronique or the Passion of Joan of Arc. Like I take in these other images that start to haunt me and that become part of me so that I don't think about those other images and memories and all of the pain that's attached to them. So I'm focusing on these films so that I can literally see something else <laughs> with my eyes instead of the horror that I've seen. And I think that is part of it. I really do. And it was sort of a revelation to me recently to to realize that, that a lot of the times I watch films at night. That's something that is very important to me. Like, it's not that I never watch films during the day. I, I certainly do. It happens on occasion. But I have a very particular routine, or I guess ritual, where I watch them at night, in the dark. And also, the nighttime is, al- is always the hardest time for me. And I'm sure it's the hardest time for a lot of people. When you might be alone, I'm alone at night. And maybe you start to think about the past. You start to think about trauma. You start to think about things you've been through. Maybe your mind starts to race the way mine does. My thoughts race. Like there's this darkness in me. And it's just always there. It's always hovering over me or inside of me. In order to not think about those things, 
I think I'll watch films so that I can think about something else so that the the movie can absorb me the movie can distract me and I watch all kinds of different things I watch art house I watch trashy stuff I watch crime shows (laughs) so I'm not talking specifically about art house films I don't watch as many as I probably should but um any kind of film And so film becomes therapeutic in that way. But I think it also becomes profoundly spiritual. That while other people may pray or they may go to church or they may go wherever or do wherever or do whatever to help them bear life and cope with the terrible things that they've been through. Because I certainly know that people have been through things that are worse than what I've been through. I know that and sometimes I feel guilty for even talking about my pain when I realize that, wow, there are people in the world who have been through a lot worse. That's a hard balance, right? When you've been through terrible things and then you realize, well, there's people in the world who have been through a lot worse. I don't think it's a particularly helpful thing (laughs) to, to tell somebody or to even think because your pain is your pain and it matters and it's shaped you and it's perhaps destroyed you and devastated you in in ways and it does matter your pain matters you don't need to compare it to someone else's and it doesn't need to be a competition you know while other people may find comfort in religion or whatever I really think that films and cinema have started to become that for me I mean, I also love literature. I love poetry. I often turn to poetry when I need comfort. Mary Oliver recently died, which was just devastating to me. She's one of my favorite poets. And she's one of those poets that I'll sort of go to when I need comfort. I need something accessible to read. And she's been really helpful for me in that way. And it was hard to hear about her death. But I think that cinema has really become a kind of therapeutic thing for me, for me to go to it and look at other images, look at other lives, look at other experiences that take me out of my own experience. And I got to thinking too recently, like I wonder if that's why I've been so interested in the Holocaust all my life or in different kinds of genocide that have happened, especially in the 20th century, is that when you read those stories, it's like it it really can't get worse than that. The gas chambers the death camps. It just completely obliterates your own experience and your own suffering because this is so terrible. I think it maybe is a way to not think about my own pain, to focus on other people's pain so that I don't have to look at my own. And so I wonder sometimes too if cinema works that way for me where, well, if I'm looking at these images, if I'm looking at these lives, then I don't have to look at my life. I don't have to look at my memories and my pain. And sometimes I do need to look at those things, but I can't look at those things all the time. And so I do think we need comfort in life. I do think we need relief. I look at those things when I want to write about them, and I look at them for the podcast too. I've talked about grief. I've talked about losing my father. I've talked about dealing with anxiety, depression, and agoraphobia. So it's not like I never face these things. It's not like I repress them or suppress them and just deny that they're there. I try to look at them when I think that it might be helpful to other people. I share my 
life experiences. I share my pain so that maybe there's somebody else out there that has agoraphobia or there's somebody else out there who has anxiety, somebody else out there who's lost a parent and has been really devastated by it or lost a friend or whoever. And they feel like, oh, I should be over this. I should be okay. Well, maybe you don't. You know, maybe you have the right to the way that you feel. And maybe if you hear my story, you feel validated in that. I don't know. I don't know what kind of ripples these episodes could have. I hope that they have some kind of positive impact or positive ripples. I will always have to talk about my pain. And I always have to talk about the things that I've been through. But cinema has really helped me. It's helped me not drown in the despair and the sorrow. Because I'm somebody who's very melancholy by nature. It's just who I am. (laughs) And so cinema has helped bring me out of that at times. To focus my mind on something else. To give me beautiful images. (laughs) To fill my head with those beautiful, gorgeous images that you see in cinema that haunt you, right? So it's helped me reconnect with life in that way and to live again. And to say that... Yes, I have these horrific memories that I'll never get over of things that I've seen and things that I felt and and suffered. They'll never go away. But cinema and other art, it's a reminder of life. It's a reminder that, yes, there are these images of death and loss and darkness, but there are other images of light of trees, of people living, of life going on, and of life being enough, and life being worth living again. And so, I'm deeply grateful for that. I'm deeply grateful for the gift that cinema has given me of life itself. Life. So, I'll stop here. (laughs) I always cry. (laughs) Now I would like to transition and talk about The Go-Between, this glorious book by L.P. Hartley. And this really beautiful film adaptation by the BBC that was done in 2015. In a way, I think I've chosen the film just so that I could talk about the book. It's like an excuse to talk about this novel that has really taken me over. I first read it in 2018, and I feel this book very deeply because as I've just gone on about, I went through a lot in my life and in my childhood in particular and in my teenage years, I guess you could say. And there was this before and after in my life. And I think about my childhood almost obsessively. I think about the before of my childhood, before the death of my father, before everything that happened as a consequence of his death. And the go-between, it's about so many things, and I'll dig into the themes throughout this episode. But for me, the the core of the novel, of the story, and of this film adaptation is the way that our childhoods shape us and haunt us and 
how we really maybe never fully escape them, at least some of us. I think maybe some people do. I I think they certainly do. They must. They are aware of their childhoods. I'm sure they think about it, but they're the kind of people that I guess can live in the present, you know, or they look forward to the future. And I'm somebody very different. I'm somebody much much more like Leo Colston, who is the protagonist of the novel. And when he's 12 years old and about to turn 13, goes through this very traumatic experience in a lot of ways. And it forever changes him. It almost freezes him in a way. And it makes it difficult for him to connect to people. It makes it difficult for him to live and to be a social person, to be open to people, to trust, to be vulnerable. And he can trace so much of that back to the year of 1900 when he goes to his friend Marcus's home called Brandom Hall. Marcus has this older sister named Marion and Marion is having an affair with a farmer named Ted Burgess. Leo becomes the messenger between the two of them. She lives on Brandom Hall. Ted Burgess lives on his farm. They're very far away from each other. Now Marion is supposed to get married to another man named Lord Trimmingham who has been scarred in the Boer War at that time that was going on. She obviously doesn't want to marry Trimmingham. She's in love with Ted, but they can't be together because of the class structure in England at that time. And so Leo becomes the go-between. That's why it's called that. He is the person that goes between the two of them, sending notes for their rendezvous. That's how they plan when they're going to meet. And for a while, Leo is not aware that that's what's going on because he's a 12-year-old boy. He's naive. He's innocent. And then that knowledge comes to him and other things happen in the novel, which I'll get to in a moment. But I did want to talk a little bit about L.P. Hartley, about the writing of the book. I, I come from a literary background, as some of you might know. I have a a uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature. A big part of what I read when I was in college was British Literature. I took this wonderful British uh, British Literature class where we read Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence and all kinds of great people. I, I really I loved that class. I have a deep love and affinity for British literature. When I was around 16, I discovered the the work of Virginia Woolf, and I've just always really loved her, and I've always been enchanted by England. I just have. It's it's always been part of me, and I, I enjoy British literature. The Go-Between is just, it's become one of my favorite novels. I reread it for this episode, so I've read it twice now, and I think it actually gets better on a second reading, because you pick up on things, and you notice things that maybe you didn't before. It is a beautifully constructed novel, and it's written from the perspective of Leo as an older man. It's 1952 when the book begins, and Leo is thinking back to his younger self in 1900. He finds this old diary that he kept at the time. And the diary, literally, you know, when he opens that diary, he's opening the past back up. It almost acts as this Pandora's box. And he's really pulled 
by the undertow of the past and by those memories and that summer, that very hot, hot summer in 1900. It's a, it's a book filled with a great deal of nostalgia because it's an older man thinking back to these events that happened when he was very young. There is this idealization, this romanticization of the past as well. And why I wanted to talk about this film and this book is because I always choose films very purposefully. Every film that I choose, there is a reason behind it. And usually it's connected to my life at the time when I'm recording the episode. That something is happening, something is sort of churning inside of me that I feel like I need to get out. That's why I call this more like an audio diary than a podcast. Because it's about capturing my state of mind or my experiences at a particular time in my life. That's what I'm doing with each episode. I'm 29 years old. In about six months, I'm going to turn 30. And I think that there is something powerful about 30. There is this sense that maybe it's like a transitional age where you feel like, oh, I'm going to be 30. I should feel like an adult. I should feel like this fully formed person. And I don't. A lot of things that I thought my life would be, they haven't become. I had these dreams when I was a child and none of them have happened. You know, instead what happened to me was a lot of grief and loss and pain and suffering. And I don't know how to make sense of it. You know, I don't know how to make sense of my life, of all the loss I've been through, all the terrible experiences I've been through, of losing my father, of going to work at a factory when I was 18 that sort of destroyed my health. You know, I'm not this like able-bodied, carefree person at 29, the way other 29-year-olds probably are. You know, the the depression, the anxiety, the agoraphobia that I had in the wake of my father's death, not just his death, but the death of my grandmother and my uncle within the span of three years that happened between the time I was 16 and when I was 19 or 20. It just, that that period of time in my life, it's it's so compressed where my father dies and then my grandmother dies and then my uncle dies. I go to work at that factory and my health disintegrates. My mom and I were living in poverty. My mom and I were struggling to survive at the time. Instead of going to college out of high school, I went to work at the sewing factory and it was such a brutal experience for my mind and my body. At the same time, I was dealing with anxiety, depression, agoraphobia because of my father's death, really, and all this death that I was confronting at such an early age. I had no help. I had no friends. I had no support system. I had no access to counseling or therapy. I had to somehow survive as I was drowning, you know, as I felt like my limbs were attached to this very heavy object and I was literally just drowning in fear and pain and sorrow and the way that has marked me and scarred me I can't put it away in a drawer and act like it didn't happen these things that happened to me to my life the trauma that accumulated in such a short period of time it's it's just like what do you do with it 
what do you do with it? And so because my life has been so difficult since 2006, when my father died, we're talking about 12, I mean, almost 13 years at this point, I've found comfort or I've sought solace in my childhood before he died. You know, the years really before I was a teenager, because when I was 13, that's when he first got sick. He had health problems that he started to develop when I was around 13. And then he ended up dying when I was 16. But his death was still very unexpected and preventable is all I will say about it, Um, because it's really complicated and too painful to talk about um, the circumstances of his death. So really until I was 13. Really, Leo's age, I'm just realizing, the point at which Leo becomes traumatized, the point at which Leo has to face this very adult world where he becomes embroiled in these very adult things like sex and betrayal and all these things that he is not prepared for happens in that transitional stage from 12 to 13. And in a lot of ways, it echoes and it parallels my own experience of becoming 13 and everything sort of falling apart in my life. My father's body falling apart. Me and Leo obviously confronted very different things, But it was still, I think, a shock to our systems. And so I think that's why this book is very resonant for me. There are other reasons that I'll get into in a moment. But I wanted to explain why I chose to talk about the book and the film. is because like Leo, older Leo, I look back to my past a lot and my childhood and to this sort of idealized time in my life when I had both my parents before my father was sick, before we were struggling so much financially, before all these people died, before my mental health disintegrated and my body disintegrated at such an early age. You know, I think back to when I was 10 or something, you know, the that age. And I really am obsessed with it. <laughs> it's like I I think about my childhood so much and I like ache for it. Like, I just deeply, deeply ache to be a child again. To be a little girl in her bedroom who knows that both of her parents are across the hall in their bedroom. You know, I had that life at one time when I had both my mom and my dad. And I didn't know what death was. I didn't know all of these terrible, horrible things. Because I think when you confront death at an early age... When you lose a parent, especially, or if whoever you're really close to, that first confrontation with loss and death, I think that it just, you can never go back. You can never go back to being someone who doesn't know about death. It's so traumatic to your system. It's like I was completely, within in a second, you know, when they told me he was dead, it was like everything was stripped away from me. Like, I felt like I wasn't even in my body anymore. Like, I feel like it rearranged my molecules and my DNA. I don't even think I am on a molecular level the same person. It was that traumatic to my mind and body. Like, I will never forget it. I will never forget that moment when I knew that he was dead. Like, it was just this crack 
in the earth. It was like my world completely cracked apart. I was torn apart. And there was the life before and there was the life after. And this book opens with a really famous line. And it's, quote, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there, unquote. And it's like that before is a completely different country that I was exiled from. Like you're exiled from your childhood. You're just ejected from it immediately. And now you're this other person. You're in this other world and you don't know who you are and you don't know what's happening and you're scared to death. You're scared to death. And you didn't know you could even feel that kind of pain and suffering. You didn't even know it was possible. And you can't even comprehend what you are going through or what you've become. And so that moment marks me and it scars me forever. And so that's why this book is so resonant is that I think Leo goes through something very similar where when Marion and Ted are found out, when their affair is exposed, And when Ted goes and shoots himself, this is Leo's confrontation with death and loss. This is Leo's before and after. This is his seismic moment when his childhood ends. It's a book about a loss of innocence. And so is the film. But I want to talk a little bit about L.P. Hartley. I feel like I'm just going on about myself. What's new? Um, (laughs) I know it's intense. But I just wanted to explain why I chose the film, why I love it, why I love the book. And I will say, I know that there is another film adaptation of the book by Joseph Losey. I'm well aware of it. (laughs) I don't like to get negative on the podcast. I will just say that I prefer this adaptation of the book. I know that the Joseph Losey version is very beloved, especially in Britain. And that a lot of people love it. I personally just didn't care for it. I like this one better. It fits my image of the book. What I had in my head in terms of the aesthetic and the cinematography and the poetry of the film. It's a poetic film. It's almost like a painting that is in front of you. And so that's why I've chosen this version. Because I just prefer it. And film is deeply subjective in that way that some of us really love a film and fall in love with it and then some of us don't we don't have those same feelings about it so for me this film version even though it's a I guess technically a tv movie because it's produced by the BBC it just captured the emotions and the feelings and the the themes in a richer more evocative way for me And so I just want to say that, that I do know about that version, (laughs) but I wanted to cover this one. And that's sort of unusual and unexpected because most people talk about the Losey version. So The Go-Between, it was published uh, recently, or I guess a few years ago or whenever, by the really prestigious publishing group, the New York Review of Books Classics. And I love the New York Review of Books. And I love the books that they publish. (laughs) I've read many of them. And they are just spectacular. They do great work. 
they they do great work in bringing under under known literature under known works to a wider public and it's it's just really great to see books that have sort of languished in obscurity for decades that can get a new life when New York Review of Books Classics publishes them or re reprints them republishes them and they tend to always have an introduction in the book and so the one for the go-between was written by Cullum Tobin. I hope that I'm saying that right. <laughs> I really apologize if I'm not. It's a difficult name. And he's a very well-respected, beloved writer. And he wrote a great introduction to the book. And he wrote that Hartley really, quote, put everything he knew and everything he was into the go-between. Hartley was 58, when he wrote this book and it was published in 1953. He started to write it in May of 1952 and he worked on it obsessively and finished it by October of the same year. So from May to October he wrote The Go-Between. He was absolutely obsessed by it and Hartley is a lot like Leo in the book in many ways. He was inspired by 1900 because it was the beginning of the 20th century. There was this feeling that, you, you know, this was, you were on the cusp of, of something great, of what was to come, right, in 1900. He was also inspired by his own childhood. He would have been around four years old in 1900. And for him, that was sort of an Edenic time in his childhood. He also was someone very conscious of class and the class system. He tried very hard for much of his life to be part of the upper class. And he was very upset when the class system sort of became under attack once the First World War happened in 1914. He was homosexual from what we're told, but I don't think we know of any kind of lovers that he might have had or anything like that. Hartley just really struggled with modernity. He struggled with the world and the way it was changing, and I think that comes out in the go-between. He writes it in 1952, after both world wars, after so much has happened and so much has changed rapidly in those decades, and you can tell that he, he is idealizing the past. He is looking back on it in this romanticized way, and I think that was very personal for him. It's a book about so many things. I mean, for me, an important part of it is that loss of innocence. It's so deeply about loss of innocence. And of course, the core of the book for me is childhood and the loss of childhood, the damage of childhood, the way that what happens to us when we're children can have a profound and lasting impact on us and shapes who we are. It doesn't mean that that happens to everybody, but I think for a good amount of people, what happens to us as children is profoundly influential. But it's it's not just about childhood and loss of innocence. It's also about these this very important issue of like class, the class system, class consciousness. Leo's someone who's just very acutely aware of his status because he's middle class. And Marcus Maudsley the, the young boy um, that he's friends with and who lives at Brandon Hall where Leo goes in 1900 and meets Marion and 
the Marcus's entire family. They're rich. They're very wealthy. They live in this huge estate. And it's this completely different world for Leo that he's never experienced before. So he is just acutely aware of his middle class status. And he is always uncomfortable in the world of the rich. He always feels out of place and like a misfit. He's very self-conscious about his clothes. That's a big deal in the film. The suit that he wears And then Marion goes and gets him a green suit so that he's cooler in the summer. And even the way he talks, he doesn't pronounce some names properly. And that's a recurring thing throughout the book and the film. It's a book about nostalgia, about really believing that the past or when you were a child was a more pure and perfect time. I've been thinking, like I said, so much about my childhood and thinking about that time in my life and how I've really idealized it. And I have made it this perfect and pure time in my life. And my childhood would have been like 1989 to the very early 2000s to probably like 2002 because my dad got sick in 2003. And so I would say that is my, my perfect time in my life. You know, I'll listen to a lot of music from the 90s. I'll watch films from the 90s and television shows and things that I grew up on and I become really obsessed with it. And sometimes I cry about it and I get very intensely emotional about it, about that time in my life. And I know that there were terrible things happening. I mean, but to me, it felt like a simpler time. It's especially in the 90s. It's pre 9-11. It's pre Iraq war, pre Afghanistan war. It's pre-recession that would happen in 2008. So I think objectively, it was a different time. There were not cell phones the way there is now. There, you know, people still went to physical places and bought things and life was different. And I like to think that it was simpler. But I think that the way we look at a particular decade or a particular time is always going to be colored by our own experiences. So for, you know, 30-year-olds who were growing up in the 90s, it was probably a completely different time. For them, they were thinking about the 80s or the 70s as the perfect time in their life, not the 90s. For them, the 90s are the time when they're becoming, you know, into their 30s. Just like for me, 2019 is not a great time for me. But of course, there are people who are younger than me right now in 2019, who in 10 years or 20 years will look back on this year and or, you know, the last few years, you know, the 2010s and they'll say, oh, I really miss that time. You know, to them, it will be a perfect time when we're going through a Trump presidency. We're dealing with climate change. There's all kinds of like bad, scary things happening right now. But for kids growing up right now, in 10 or 20 years, they'll look back and this will be their pure and perfect time. Just like for me, the 90s are my pure and perfect time. So that's the way nostalgia works. You know, it it completely, you know, it erases the bad stuff you went through and it just gives you the beautiful and gorgeous things and the beautiful memories that that's a big part of the the novel though is that nostalgia that for LP Hartley and for Leo 1900 is the perfect year but it's also um it's also the year in which Leo's life is shattered when he is traumatized really and 
as an older man in his 50s, he's, or I guess he would have been in his 60s, actually. He's trying to make sense of it in some way. And he goes back to Brandon Hall in the epilogue of the book to meet Marion, to see what's happened to her. And so a lot of stuff happens. But because the book is told by an older man, thinking back to his younger self, the language in the book is very beautiful. It's sensuous. It's sort of shimmering in a lot of ways. There's very beautiful passages in the novel. And the film picks up on that. The film reproduces the beauty and the sensuality of the language, almost as though the past is a dream, you know, and we that we can't even believe ever really happened. I mean, that's what the past becomes, especially for when we are children, right? I mean, Hartley himself, in the author's introduction to the novel, he talks about how he was inspired by a very hot summer in England in 1900, when he was around four years old. And to him, this was the golden age. And he says he thought of it as, quote, being the color of gold. I didn't want to go back to it, but I wanted it to come back to me. And I still do, unquote. So Hartley himself had this very deep longing for his childhood. So now I will talk about the film. But as I'm talking about the film, I'll... I'll refer to the book as well because for me they're very entwined with one another. Obviously the book is the source material but not every film adaptation of a book is particularly true to it. You can have a book and a film that are very different from each other and then you sometimes you can have a film that just absolutely beautifully captures a book, captures the feeling, the mystery of a book the intangible qualities that are in a book. And I think really when we're talking about the translation of a text to the screen, I think that's what we should try for or we should want. Not like an exact replication of the novel, but something that captures the soul, the heart, the beauty of it. Something that comes to mind is the recent adaptation of Call Me By Your Name by Luca Guadagnino, which I have an episode about. And I'm going to be soon talking about a film called Girl with a Pearl Earring that's also based on a book. And those, for me, those the when they were made into films, are just, they perfectly capture the book. Like, they just do. It's a rare thing. You know, so often people will say, oh, the book was better, or the short story was better if the film is based on a short story. And it's very rare for you to say, well, you know what? I loved both. I loved both for different reasons. You engage with them in different ways. I love the novel. The novel's dear to me. I've read it twice now. I'll probably read it again. It's just... It just lives inside of me in some way. But I think I would watch the film again, too. I mean, I've watched the film twice for this episode. Um, I first watched the film, like, right after I read the book in 2018. And then I got to thinking that I really wanted to talk about this story. I wanted to talk about what is in this film. So let's talk about the film. Let's, Let's do that. Came out in 2015, produced by the BBC. It's directed by Pete Travis, written by Adrian Hodges, who I think does a really beautiful job of translating the book onto the screen. I really do. Um, Young Leo is played by Jack Hollington. Older Leo is played by Jim Broadbent, who is just wonderful. And they were 
able to use these two very different actors at completely different stages of their lives. And they capture Leo and they look similar to each other in a weird way, like their eyes. Like when I looked at little Jack Collington, who's playing little Leo, that sounds weird. Little Leo, his eyes are very expressive and there's like this innocence and this curiosity and there's a lot of emotions in his eyes. I I find him to be a wonderful child actor. And I think all the acting in this film is quite superb. I mean, I don't know how you can go wrong usually with a BBC production. I, I don't know. British actors are just always so wonderful. But Jim Broadbent does a really wonderful job. And Jim Broadbent has these eyes that are so different and so expressive. He plays the father in Bridget Jones's diary, if any of you don't know who I'm talking about. He's just this lovely, innocent looking man. And so he captures some of that wide-eyed, sort of childlike innocence that little Leo has, young Leo has. In this film, Marion Maudsley uh, is Marcus's sister, and she's played by Joanna Vander Vanderham, or Vanderham, I'm not sure how that would be pronounced. And she is everything you imagine Marion to be, because the thing about Marion is that she is idolized by Leo. Leo doesn't even almost see her as a person, as a girl, a young woman. He sees her as like the personification of beauty. He sees her as representing beauty itself. And of course, in his memory, she's going to be even more ethereal, even more gorgeous. And Joanna is blonde and the the costumes in this film will take your breath away. The whole look and the cinematography of the film is gorgeous. An older Marion, who we see at the end of the film when Leo goes back to Brandom Hall in the 1950s, to see Marion again is played by the iconic, the legendary Vanessa Redgrave, who is not on screen much, but absolutely packs a punch as Marion. I don't, I don't think Vanessa Redgrave ever does a bad performance at all. And it's interesting to note that Ian McEwen was, I think, influenced by The Go-Between. And Vanessa Redgrave has a part in his film Atonement. And Atonement has some similar themes to The Go-Between about innocence, lost innocence, a child, you know, a child's perspective on two adults who are engaged in a sexual relationship. It's interesting to note that Ian McEwen on the the back cover of the novel, The Go-Between, they have a quote from him. And on The Go-Between, he says, quote, Its famous formulation about the past sets the tone. This is a strange and beautiful book. I first read it in my early teens, and its atmosphere of yearning for lost times and of childish innocence challenged has haunted me ever since. Unquote. I quite like Ian McEwen. I quite like his novels. And so he he was quite taken by this by the book. And I think you can see some of that influence in Atonement and Vanessa Redgrave also plays the older version of one of the characters in that film. So I thought that was an interesting connection between the two. Ted Burgess is played by Ben Batt, who is quite hunky and quite attractive in this film. And Mrs. Maudsley, 
who is Marcus's mother and Marion's mother, is played by the superb Leslie Manville. And she was recently in Phantom Thread by Paul Thomas Anderson. She's also in a really great detective show called River. Uh, I really love her in that as well. Leslie Manville gives a really fantastic performance as Mrs. Maudsley. Immediately, the film opens with older Leo, just as the book opens with older Leo. And we see him, played by Jim Broadbent, on a train. And he's making his journey back to Brandom Hall. And in the novel, it opens with him finding his diary from 1900. So the film does a really good job of taking that and instead showing him on the train, showing him holding the diary from 1900. And we see younger Leo sitting in front of him on the train. He engages with the child version of himself. Young Leo says, you know, I gave you such a great start in life and it's been 50 years. You've been given half a century to get over what happened in 1900, but he's not able to. Leo has not been able to get over what happened in 1900, to get over seeing Marion with Ted, right? Seeing, you know, them realizing that they were having a sexual relationship. But more than that, he can't get over, I think, the feeling that he's been used by these two people. That everything that Marion did throughout the film and the book, like buying him the green suit because he hasn't brought any summer clothes and it's a very hot summer. He has this sort of like tweed suit on that's very hot. And she takes him into town and buys him this beautiful like lime sherbet suit that's really beautiful. You know, she dotes on him a bit and she says nice things to him and she does various things to make him feel special or I think he grapples with the knowledge that she was doing that so that he would take notes for her so that he would go to Ted Burgess and give Ted the note so that the two of them could meet. And this idea that Leo was just a pawn in their love affair, in their secret sort of tawdry to some people love affair. And he was used. And I think perhaps that's what traumatized him as well. And also that Ted killed himself, that Ted shot himself at the end of the book. And so that has cast a very long shadow for Leo. And he says on the train, he says, quote, I have lived in the shadow of the past, afraid it would ruin my life. It has, unquote. Already the film is building this theme of the past, of the power of the past, the way that it shapes us, especially when we're children, the way the past is sort of the seed in a way, and it implants certain things into us, into our lives, and they grow with us into adulthood. I mean, if you think about it, there is this ongoing motif throughout the novel and in the film of of the deadly nightshade. The deadly nightshade is this plant that grows outside the the building, the outhouse where Marion and Ted meet each other, where they have their secret rendezvous that nobody knows about. And the way that they schedule those rendezvous is through Leo. Leo taking their notes back and forth for miles. The the book presses upon it presses upon us more that he is walking like miles to take these notes. But of course, that wouldn't have been unusual, I'm sure, in 1900. But there's this deadly nightshade that grows. And it's it's sort of symbolic. You know, some have said that it's 
sort of symbolic of Marion. And some people think it's sort of this heavy-handed symbol. I would almost argue that the deadly nightshade could also be seen as the past, as this thing that grows uncontrollably, this thing that is deadly and that can stain us and taint us and that we can't control. You know, it just grows and grows and grows. Those experiences that grows inside of us, these little seeds that get planted when we're children, the way that we feel about ourselves, the way we look at things and how it can just um, twine itself around us and almost like strangle us in a way. It's like a vine or this plant that is gets overgrown. I, I think maybe I think of the deadly nightshade more in that way as something connected to the past of this thing that's just uncontrollably growing inside of us that we can't get rid of that we cannot excise from ourselves. Leo is initiated into these very adult things that he's not ready for at the age of 12 or 13. And yet he has to deal with them and he has to face them. And they affect him really for the rest of his life. And that's another thing that resonates with me is because when I was younger... I had an older friend. I had an older best friend. She lived in my neighborhood and I was about five or six when we first met and she was older than me by several years. I was probably in kindergarten or first grade and she was probably in fifth grade. I was like a really precocious child though. I was really mature for my age. I did not look my age. I didn't look like a kindergartner or a first grader. Um, I looked much older than that when I was that age. Um, And so we just connected And there weren't a lot of people who lived in my neighborhood, a lot of children, I mean, a lot of people my age. For several years, we were best friends. We were inseparable, but she was older than me. She was more developed than me in terms of her body. She got a lot of attention from guys and she had to deal with that much more than I did. She had this boyfriend that she eventually got with um, when she was a bit older, probably in her teens. I was exposed to things through her at a really early age that I probably shouldn't have been exposed to because she was meeting this guy. They were having sex. You know, I'm like eight years old. I'm like eight or nine at the time. And she's telling me about it and things like that. That's what I mean. And I was not really prepared for it. And I do feel like I was exposed to really adult things at like an early age that I was not prepared for, that I didn't know how to handle. That's something that I sort of have in common with Leo of how do you, how do you handle adult things when you're not at the age where you can like process them mentally and where you feel like that is damaging towards you. When I look back on it, I just feel like I probably grew up way too fast as a kid because I was exposed to these things that were normal for her because she was a teenager and she was going through these things. But for me, as somebody who was much younger than her by at least five years, I was not prepared for them. Even though I seemed mature and I seemed precocious, I seemed older than my years. I seemed like an old soul and like I could handle it. When I look back, I realize I really couldn't handle it and that I didn't know how to process this information that I was exposed to way too early. 
And so I think it, it can have an effect on you for the rest of your life. And you see that with Leo being exposed to Marion and Ted's relationship. I want to linger a moment on how the film is filmed. The cinematography is beautiful. There are certain choices that are made in this film. This is all, this is why I prefer the BBC production. In many ways, I said before that BBC usually has really high quality period dramas. They usually do really great adaptations of classic novels. It's what they're known for. They just do these really lush, sumptuous, historical dramas. And I love them. I've always loved period dramas. Always. I grew up on them. I love watching films that are set in the past. I love the fashion. I love... um, the, the passion that are often in these films, just the beauty of them. They are often aesthetically beautiful films, right? Because back in the 1900s, the early 1900s or the 1800s, you know, women's fashion was very beautiful. The interiors of these very opulent homes that you'll see in these films are very beautiful. I would also say that sort of Merchant Ivory started this. They sort of created the template of these just really lush, high quality historical dramas. I've talked about a Merchant Ivory film called Morris that has James Wilby and Hugh Grant in it. I love that film. It's like a dream when I watch it. I love it. It's a big comfort film for me. It's one of my favorite films and it's by James Ivory. And he did a really great job. And Merchant Ivory just, they knew what they were doing with these historical dramas. And this BBC production is great. But I would say this one is almost like a step above your normal BBC drama. That there's just something very poetic about it. It's almost like on this other level. It's a TV movie, but it doesn't feel like a TV movie. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like something you would see in a theater. It feels... I guess much more artful, like more art house to me, because the camera is shaky at times, like it's handheld. There's definitely scenes where the camera is handheld, and it immediately gives the film more of a modern feel, even though it's set in 1900, that shaky camera. And often it, like the camera will be in the grass. You'll see tendrils of grass, and you'll see through that. And you'll see people almost like a voyeur type thing. Or when people are in bedrooms, there will be like this jewel, this jewel tone, or not jewel tone, but these, the reflection of jewels. I don't know how to explain it. Almost like you're in a dream. It, it, the light and the color in the film is just golden. You know, when Hartley describes how that time for him was like the golden age that it was like literally the color of gold the film is like that in a lot of ways it is almost the color of gold it is a complete dream I mean it is so dreamy it makes me like gasp like it makes my mouth water (laughs) it is so beautiful it like every scene I was screenshotting like crazy. Uh, Sometimes when I watch films, I screenshot a lot because every scene felt like this painting. It felt so beautifully composed and the fashion and the interiors and the, the grounds of Brandon Hall and oh, it just 
was stunning. I love films like this. They completely take you into another world, right? Such a sumptuous adaptation. Beautiful, light-soaked, really like our own memories. That's the way I think of it, that this aesthetic is dreamy the way that our memories are dreamy. Because in many ways, I think memories are almost like dreams. It's like we have our memories, but we only have flashes of them sometimes. The light of our memories can often sort of be sun-soaked and idealized and romanticized and sort of gauzy, right? There's like almost this gauze over our memories and they are like dreams. And so I felt like this film was so sensual and sensuous. You just, I don't know, I can't explain it. You felt like you could touch the actor's skin. You felt like you could touch Marion's hair. You felt like you could feel the sweat on their bodies. You felt like you could smell the farm. It's almost like the visual manifestation of Hartley's language. That when Hartley is describing Brandon Hall or describing, you know, everything in the book, it's so sensuous. It's so evocative and almost tangible to you because he uses very beautiful language. And the film does something very similar through imagery through the image, that it makes these things feel very tangible and touchable to you. The The people, they feel like they're in a dream, but they also just feel very close. It, you just feel like you could reach through the screen and touch everything you're seeing. That there's close-ups of their faces. There's close-ups on the grass. There are these flecks of light, these light beams, almost this aura around the different characters like this aura of light around them it's almost angelic at times it just they feel so real and so um tangible to you that's the only way i can describe it and so it's like this literal translation of hartley's language to the image the images are just so stunning like i i can't i can't talk about it enough i was just absolutely entranced and enchanted by this film. I was just, you know, I went into it thinking, oh, it's a BBC production. It's going to be good. It's going to be competent. They they do a wonderful job in adapting these books. But sometimes the emotional component can be missing from historical dramas. You can feel like these people are very distant from you. You feel like, oh, you know, that was another time. What does it have to do with me? And there can be a lack of emotion in these films as well because everything is so suppressed and and repressed and people are not able to share their emotions or anything. And so there can be a lack of feeling, I guess, at times in some of these films. And just sometimes with a TV movie, you just, you don't get that sort of richness or that that feeling that you're looking at a work of art. But when I was watching this adaptation, I felt like I was watching a work of art. I felt like this is art. And I felt like there was a very deep emotion to the film. You know, that you could feel the performances of the actors, but more than that, you could feel the atmosphere, feel the heat of 1900 at Brandom Hall. You could smell it, you could taste it, you could touch it. That's what I mean when I say sensuous, that every sense of your body is engaged as you watch the film. 
And Marion, as I said earlier, played by Joanna, just she is this, she materializes out of the light. She's almost made of light. And that's how she would live in Leo's memory. This is not necessarily how these people really were. It's not necessarily supposed to represent reality. It's supposed to represent memory. It's supposed to represent Leo's own memory of these people. And to him, they were like a dream. They were like something out of a fairy tale. And Marion was the most beautiful of all. And she embodies the idea of beauty itself. She's gauzy. She's blonde. She's ethereal. And when we first see her, she's outside in the light, um... She's sort of framed by flowers. She's in this white dress. She's breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking to look at her. And it must have been what Leo felt when he first saw her. So we're seeing the film through the memories of a child. And that also shapes the way this film looks. And I think that's also why the film, why the story is so powerful. Because it's told through a child, but it's told through an older man remembering being a child, right? So I guess that's not completely accurate what I'm saying, but it still is his memories. You know, it still is him thinking about something from his childhood. And we are seeing it through both Leo's eyes as an old man and Leo's eyes as a child because because of the diary as well. And Marion, for him, is like this revelation, right? I think Marion takes on huge importance in his life and even though he's 12 years old and she's older than him for Leo this is like I would almost say that Marion is like his first love and that he he puts so much into her into the idea of her and I think that's why he's so devastated by what happens is that this is the first time he has ever felt so enraptured by a woman and by another person. And he thinks, I think, that those feelings are reciprocated in some way, because she does take an interest in him. She takes him to get the green suit and all of that. And she talks to him, and she can tell that he has that class consciousness, that he feels uncomfortable, right? And so I do want to talk about class, because that is a big part of the film. It's a big part of the novel, is that Leo, in many ways, travels between these two different worlds, that of opulence and that of his middle-class life. And he's also doing that when he goes to Ted's farm. You know, one minute he's at the opulence of Brandom Hall, and then the next he's sliding down the straw stacks at Ted Burgess's farm. And Ted is more working class, more lower class, obviously, uh, to the Maudsleys. And that is precisely the reason why Marion and Ted can't be together. I mean, the ultimate tragedy of the film, right, is that these two people can't be together. That they are deeply in love. And in another time, there would have been no problem for them to be together. But because of the class system in England, because of how strict it was... They couldn't be. She has to marry Lord Trimmingham, who she doesn't want to marry. She has no interest in him. Her passion and her love lie with Ted. And so in a way, they're like Romeo and Juliet. They are the the star-crossed lovers, the lovers who can't be together. And even though they use Leo in many ways, 
you have sympathy for Marion and Ted. And I think you have a lot of sympathy for Marion. And you can see throughout the film, I thought the film did a really great job of showing the clash between Marion and Mrs. Maldsley. That the two of them are always clashing and that Mrs. Maldsley does not give any kind of autonomy or agency to Marion because women back then didn't have that. You know, they didn't get to choose who they would marry, especially, I'm sure, in the upper upper classes, you know, in the the aristocracy. They married not for love, but for status and things like that. Marion is not asked who she wants to marry. She's just told, you're going to marry this person. This is what's going to happen. And Marion is intent on resisting that. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So the the film is very conscious of class. We see that in Leo constantly. And it's in the novel as well of he always feels uncomfortable. He always feels like a misfit in this place. He doesn't feel like he belongs at Brandom Hall. He doesn't feel like his clothes are right. He doesn't feel like he pronounces things properly. He constantly fears that he's being laughed at, that he's being looked down upon, that he is inferior. And the novel makes that very clear that this is the first time in Leo's life where he feels his inferiority, that he feels like he is not at the same status as another person. And that's a hard thing to deal with. And I think that's also something that would stay with you. And that was another thing that I really related to about this, this story is that I've always been very conscious of my class. I've always felt out of place who, out of place with people who were not working class and who I really perceived as having more money than me. I felt that way when I went to college. It was a really weird experience when I went to college in 2010 when I was around like 20 or 21 years old. I went later because, as I said earlier, when I graduated high school, I went to work at a factory so that I could help my mom because we were struggling financially after the death of my father. So I didn't go to college until a bit later. And I come from like a rural background. I come from a working class background at times poor, at times really struggling financially. I just, I kind of, I felt it when I was at college. And I would sometimes feel it with my professors who didn't maybe realize the things that I was having to deal with. You know, and because of my working class background and not having a lot of money, I didn't have access to certain things. So, like, I remember when I was, studying women's and gender studies because I have um, I have a Bachelor of Arts degree in both literature and women's and gender studies. Like I was talking to one of my professors and she was talking about internships and she was like, oh, well, you know, during the summer you should try to get an internship. And I was like, well, where I live in a rural area, there there are not internships where I live. You know, those just did not exist. Um, where I lived with my mom and she just didn't get that like she and and here is somebody teaching women's and gender studies which is supposed to be conscious of class of race class gender sexuality ability all of that and she herself couldn't understand why one of her students might not have access to internships so that's what I'm talking about is like even professors not understanding 
you know, you might not have access to certain things. I, I just felt, I just felt very different at college. I didn't feel like I really connected to people my age. And maybe it wasn't class. Maybe it was more cultural. I don't know. But that's the thing is that sometimes the class that you come from determines your culture. That you may come from a very different culture because of your class background. I don't know. I've always had a hard time connecting to people. <laughs> And I also was really conscious of class when I was around my father's family because he had siblings who were more successful, who had better jobs than my mom and dad had because my dad worked, um, he worked at at a warehouse loading like trucks. He would load like 18 wheeler trucks all day and he would um, just load them with boxes and stuff like that. And my mom... She did different jobs. She sometimes had worked at a daycare. She's worked at factories. So my mom and dad, I guess you could say, like, did unskilled jobs or blue-collar jobs. Although I sort of tend to go with Barbara Ehrenreich when she says there is no such thing as an unskilled job, that every job requires certain skills. But his siblings had, you know, better jobs where they made more money. And of course, flaunted that, you know, and had all kinds of access to things that I did not have access to. And I felt really alienated from my cousins because of that. I had cousins on my mom's side and my dad's side who lived much more privileged lives than I did and had more things than I had and more access to stuff than I had. And I just always felt uncomfortable around those family members, like, you know, hearing about their horses and hearing about, you know, I remember um, one of my aunt's uh, sons, him and his partner had gone to Las Vegas and they had seen Celine Dion. And, you know, at the time we're like barely surviving, like we're barely getting by living paycheck to paycheck. And then we have to go and like look at photos of when they went to see Celine Dion in Las Vegas, right? Like it's, it makes you uncomfortable. So I've just always been really conscious of my class and insecure about it, you know, insecure about where I come from and the experiences that I've had. And I think there's always a certain amount of shame that you feel that you're, that you don't have as much money as other people. And that people with money don't understand what life is like for someone like you. So that was like a really uh, a big part of why this book and this film resonated with me. Is that the class consciousness is something that I myself feel. And I also feel it as a podcaster in a way that, you know, some podcasts have all kinds of bells and whistles, right? And I started out really gradual. I didn't have a lot of resources. I didn't have a lot of money. It took a long time for me to get music. It took a long time for me to increase or or enhance the quality of the podcast and just things like that. So I just don't have like the, the resources that other people might have. And it's just really important for me to talk about class in these episodes, you know, when it's applicable, because I don't know if people talk about it enough, you know, of what it's like to be poor or what it's like to be working class, what it's like to not have health insurance and access to things like that and how that really affects you. I've been having issues with my teeth lately. I haven't seen a dentist 
in probably 20 years. I can't afford dental insurance. I can't afford it. I can't afford health insurance. And those things have profoundly affected my life. Not having insurance, not having access to health care. It has affected literally my body. It affects my teeth. I have like major teeth issues and I've been really struggling with it. I've been in a lot of pain and it's been causing headaches. It's been causing me a lot of issues. So that's a a thing right there of like how your class can affect your life in really profound ways that people who have had dental care their entire lives or who had health care their entire lives the way that my cousins did, the way that other members of my family did, they didn't know, they don't understand what it's like for me or my mom or what my dad went through because he didn't have health insurance either. So class affects our lives in a lot of ways. And we don't want to talk about that. You know, we really don't. We just want to blame people. We just want to say, well, it's your fault. And it's not. We live under capitalism. We live under a system that says health care is not a human right when I think that it is. And I'm living through the pain and the suffering that that kind of ideology causes because I haven't had dental care in two decades and my teeth are not in great shape and I'm 29 years old. I mean, how do you think that makes me feel like that? I'm not even 30 years old and I'm already having serious teeth issues and health issues and like that's real I have to live with that every day and it's a product of my class and so I'm never not conscious of class it's something that I'm always aware of but you don't often see it explored in cinema you know it's very rare and so when I come across films that talk about class I definitely usually want to cover them And I definitely hope to cover more films that go into class issues. So like me, Leo is just very conscious (laughs) and aware of his status and that he feels inferior to these people. And that in many ways, they do look down on people who are not their class. There are two instances in the film where the classes do mix. One is during the cricket match. When the Maudsley family and the different people, part of that, you know, group, they play cricket against some of the villagers, including Ted Burgess. So that's a moment when there's the mixing of the classes. Later that day, after the cricket match, they all sort of gather at some kind of barn or tavern or some kind of place. The villagers and the Maudsley family, and there's like food and and singing and Ted sings a little bit he's not all that good (laughs) and then Leo sings and Leo is a really great singer and everybody loves him and in the cricket match he had also gotten Ted out he had caught like a ball that Ted hit and that was a big deal and so in both of these instances Leo is being called upon to sort of mature He's sort of growing into himself a little bit and feeling a bit of pride in himself that, oh, he struck out Ted or, oh, he sang and everybody clapped. And I think you can sort of remember things from your childhood that gave you that sense of pride. Those brief moments when you felt special and you felt like the center of attention, right? And I have them myself. I remember in fourth grade, 
this was such a big deal to me, but I won my one and only trophy. Like I've never, I don't play sports. I never did play sports and I was never a popular person. And so I never won anything in my life. I never won a trophy, but in fourth grade, they had this like trophy for like, it was called like character. It was like called care. I don't know what it was called. Um, something like character of the year. It was supposed to go to someone, I guess, who other, who your peers admired or thought that you had integrity or that you were a good person and the class would vote on it. And I still remember winning that trophy because it was between me and this other girl who was really popular. She was very pretty. She was very popular. And I thought there's no way, you know, that I'm going to win it. And I did. I won it. And that is still like such a big moment for me (laughs) in my life. Like I won against the popular girl. (laughs) And then another time I remember in high school, I had written this essay. I think it was about poetry. We were, we were supposed to write, I guess, about something that we really loved. And I wrote about poetry and my love of poetry. And this was Oh my Lord, I don't know when it was. I don't know if it was before or after my father died. And the teacher was so impressed by my essay that she read it to the class. But the day that she read it to the class, I wasn't there. I was absent for some reason. And so I went in the next day and she told me about it. I think she said, oh, I read your essay to the class and everybody really loved it. And I I was like sitting at my desk and like, everybody in the classroom clapped like they clapped for me because they had really loved my essay about poetry and what I had written and I was like stunned by it like I couldn't believe that this room full of you know teenagers was clapping for something that I had written and I remember also I think that I showed that uh, essay to my grandmother and it was when she was sick and it was it was probably very shortly before she passed away or maybe in the year before she passed away. And she read the essay. And I still remember that like she cried. She cried. And my grandmother wasn't like really, she didn't show her emotions a lot with me. I had sort of a complicated relationship with her, uh, my maternal grandmother. She, she was very emotional about the essay. And so I couldn't believe it. Uh, but I just remember... I remember the class clapping for me. So when Leo has these moments where he really feels that sense of pride and he feels special and and all of that, it brought back my own memories of those rare moments in my childhood when I felt special or I felt validated or I felt seen or appreciated because those were really rare experiences for me. And you can tell that for Leo, they're just so important to him. It's so important to him to be seen and to be validated and and to be the center of attention like that for the first time. But those are also instances where class, the classes are mixing. But because Leo is with the Maudsley family, he gets that class privilege. He gets seen as somebody who is in the upper classes. And so he gets treated differently because of it. He gets treated better. There's also the scene where he goes to slide down the stacks, the the haystacks or something at Ted Burgess's farm for the first time. 
and he falls and he hurts himself and he yells out and Ted comes in there and Ted's like angry and he's like what are you doing and then he realizes that he recognizes him from a scene earlier when um, the Maudsley family and Leo had gone to a lake to swim and so he immediately knows that Leo is somebody important that he's a higher class than him and so he softens his tone and he immediately changes. I'd like to return to that scene at the lake. They all go swimming. The girls are in their bathing suits, although they were very different in 1900. Like the whole body was still covered back then. But it's this really great scene where Leo is watching both Ted and Marion. And Ted is actually at the lake first and he's naked and he's skinny dipping. Leo is sort of like hiding in the grass or something and he's watching Ted. He watches Ted get out of the water and, you know, sees Ted nude and sees Ted lay down and he's sort of intently watching him like a voyeur. And it reminded me of something I read about um, the go-between that was written by Ollie Smith and she wrote on The Guardian about the go-between and reading the book when she was younger and then revisiting it when she was older and she makes the case that the book can kind of be seen as a gay novel she writes quote with its vision of foreignness of the marginalizations inherent in class and sexuality of the different possible self the different tale it can also be seen as a gentle gay novel and one of immense sophistication unquote I thought this was fascinating because I had not actually conceptualized the book or the story in that way at all. But when I think back about it, I think it's actually true that there is something about Leo and about his voyeurism in a way, but also his gaze in both the novel and the film, where I think he's almost in love with both of them. I think he's in love with Marion and Ted. And I think this scene at the lake is pivotal in that way because you see the way he's watching Ted, looking at his body and perhaps longing for that body. We don't know. But the film itself also, I don't want to say it sexualizes Ted, but I mean, I guess it does. There, There is a gaze on Ted that we usually only see on women where Ted is nude. You know, Ted is in the water. Ted is sensual there's a sensuality about ted and leo's gaze is on him and i think he's i think he's maybe just as in love with ted as he is with marion and we do know that lp harley was homosexual and i do i do think there are elements of that to to the film as well in the way that it um puts this gaze on ted and and shows him in a sensual and sort of erotic way. There's not a lot of sex in the film. I mean, at the very end, we see Marion and Ted together. What we have in this film is like sexual tension. We have sexuality and lust that is communicated through a gaze, through looks, through body language. Um, but there is this very thick sexual tension throughout the film. The way that Ted looks at Marion and Marion looks at Ted. The way that they try to pretend like they're not looking at, at each other. Like they don't know each other. And then there's sort of Leo's own, I don't want to say sexuality because he's 12. 
but his own feelings for the both of them, his sort of awakening to Marion and his feelings for Marion. At one time, he tells her that he likes her. You know, he says, I like you. And it's so sweet. It's very sweet. And she says, oh, you know, you can tell that she's flattered. But of course, I'm sure she already knows. She knows that she has an effect on men and boys. I think she's very aware of her beauty. And, but I think that, I think that Leo has emotions for Ted too, that maybe he doesn't fully understand. And he goes to Ted wanting Ted to explain spooning to him. He's desperate to know what spooning is. He's at that age where he is interested in sex. He is interested in what it means for two people to be together and, and what happens when that, when they do get together. And Leo's father has died. Leo doesn't have a father. He just has his mother. And so Ted is, I think you could also say Ted is like a a paternal figure. He's almost a bit of like a substitute father or a surrogate father in that way. And he acts paternally towards Leo. He bandages his leg up when he hurts it. He tells him what spooning is, the way that a father would explain it although he doesn't go really deeply into it and that upsets Leo at one point but he's i think he's deeply in love with both Leo and uh, with both Ted and Marion and i don't think he knows what to do with those emotions and the way that the two of these people make him feel inside right but i thought Ollie Smith's point about it being a gay novel was very intriguing and i think perhaps if i read it a third time it's something that I might be aware of, although even with the second reading, I noticed his gaze on Ted. There are quite a few descriptions in the novel itself about Ted's body and how Leo notices Ted's body. And it's it's there. You know, you can't deny it. And so I think that's an interesting layer that, that could be brought to the film. As much as he's in love with Ted and Marion... I think a part of him is also hurt by them because they use him. He is a means to an end. He is the way that the note gets from point A to point B. And I think he's haunted in his later years by wondering if he meant more to them than that. Was he ever more than that? I don't think he knows. And so I think he both loves them and perhaps hates them or despises them in a way. Although he says that he's haunted by Ted. And you can tell that he is haunted by Ted. I mean, not in the film, in the book he says that. He somehow feels responsible, I think, for what happened, even though he really had no way to prevent it. But the first time that he takes the note, that is the beginning of the end in a way that once those notes start, Leo becomes entangled in something that he can't get out of. And the relationship between Ted and Marion is similar to that deadly nightshade, how it eventually grows out of control. It becomes something that neither one of them can control anymore. But I think it's undeniable that Ted and Marion are nice to Leo as long as he does what they want him to do. And that they are manipulating him in a way. I think there is a level of manipulation. It makes me uncomfortable. And I think you can see it in the film as well. I don't know if they are as interested in Leo as he is in them. 
And I think he becomes sort of enraptured by them and entangled in their web. And they know how to get him to do what they want him to do. They know the things to say. It doesn't mean that they never cared about him. But first and foremost is him taking those notes. They will make threats to him. They will say things like, well, if you don't take this note, Marion's not going to love you anymore. Marion's not going to care about you anymore. And how is that going to make you feel? They say things like that to him when he resists. They will turn against him immediately and call him names and, and become very aggressive, you know, very threatening almost. If he refuses to take the letters or he starts to, to question it. And when he realizes that something more is between them, because at first he doesn't get it, but then he later, he opens a letter and he sees darling, darling, darling in it. And he knows that there's something romantic happening between them. He just feels completely shattered by it. You know, I think he thought he loved Marion maybe, and that she felt something for him or And he also just knows that it's not right what they're doing, that they're doing something secretive. And of course, now he has to keep the secret. And so he becomes burdened with trying to play this adult game, right, of keeping it a secret from Mrs. Maudsley, making sure nobody knows about the notes, knows where he's going when he takes them. So he he has to take on this very adult role that at 12 years old, he is not prepared for. And I think that can be very damaging to you. And I think it's damaging to him. And he does feel used by them. He feels terribly used by them. And I think that's part of what breaks him. It's not just that Ted and Marion get exposed or that Ted kills himself. It's this whole idea of these people that I loved and cared about and that I thought loved and cared about me. Did I ever mean anything to them? I mean, of course, when he thinks back, he realizes that maybe Marion did have fondness for him. You know, she bought him the suit before he ever took a note for her, right? She took him to the town that day and That didn't seem to be any kind of ulterior motive on her part. But I think he is quite haunted by that idea and the manipulation. I think he feels betrayed by Ted and Marion in that way. And that's part of his loss of innocence. And I think because of the way that they treated him, the way that it made him feel, I think it made it very difficult for Leo to trust people to be intimate with people, to open up to them, because this first huge experience of his life was about two people manipulating and using him and then sort of discarding him, you know, or being prepared to discard him if he did not do what they wanted him to do. I mean, in the novel, Hartley writes, I did not take kindly to the fact of others. I did not want them in the flesh. That way, they were most troublesome, unquote. It's like he never felt like he was a person to them. He was just an object. He was just a messenger. He was just the go-between. That's all he was to them. He didn't really mean anything to them. And I think that sort of shattered his world. And then, of course, he can't handle it. He just can't handle it. And the scene where Mrs. Maudsley confronts him because at one point he's fussing with Marion 
and she drops the note and then Mrs. Maudsley's coming and she sort of quickly puts it in his pocket. Mrs. Maudsley throughout the film has been very suspicious of Marion, where Marion goes, what Marion is doing, because Marion's life is so controlled because she's a woman. And I think there is sympathy for Marion in the film. I'm not attacking Marion. She was in love with Ted. I think she was wrapped up in that love. And she saw Leo as a way to help facilitate and enable their love affair in her mind. That's the way she sees it. But Mrs. Maudsley, she forces Leo into all this. She does not treat Leo well either in the film where she grabs him later on. It's it's Leo's birthday and Marion is off with Ted. She has not appeared for Leo's cake. You know, the cake is supposed to be sliced and served. And Leo's birthday is very unusual because all summer it's been hot, it's been sunny, it's been beautiful. And all of a sudden there's thunder and rain and it's a very ominous day. And this is the day where everything crumbles, everything falls apart. And Mrs. Maudsley grabs Leo because she knows that he knows what's happening. Because earlier she had confronted him about that letter in his pocket. Well, where where do you take these letters? She asked him. And he's not honest about it. And she can tell he's lying. And then he pretends like he doesn't have the letter. So she knows. She knows something's being hidden. And then later that day, she grabs him and they go to the outhouse and they discover Marion and Ted. And so in the film, you know, Mrs. Maudsley includes a 12-year-old, 13-year-old boy in this, in this very adult, frightening, scary thing that he is not prepared for. And that in itself is traumatizing, I think. And they go to the outhouse, they see Marion and Ted having sex. And the film has to compress a lot of stuff that's in the book. And I think it does it really well. That right after that, um, Leo, he there's this beautiful scene where Leo goes and lays down in the grass and the rain is coming down. And then we hear this gunshot. And in the book, Leo does not see Ted shoot himself. But in the film, they had Leo discover Ted's Ted's body I guess you would say although I got to thinking it could also be maybe what Leo imagines Ted looked like you know that maybe the film's not saying he did find Ted but it's perhaps in Leo's mind what he would imagine Ted looking like after he shot himself and he just lays down in the rain you know he's completely devastated by everything that's happened and then the film cuts to the present to, not to the present day now, but in 1952, to the older Leo who has made this train journey to Brandom Hall to see Marion again. He wants to know what's happened to her. He wants to know, you know, what became of her life. And that's what he finds out. And he sees her grandson, who is played by the same actor who played Ted Burgess. So we know that she had a child and that child was Ted's. She did go on to marry Trimmingham and her grandson now is very ashamed of her and he's ashamed of because of the gossip in the village of who he's descended from. So Marion meets with Leo and of course she wants him to do a last message 
to send one final message. She wants him to go and talk to her grandson and tell him that he shouldn't be ashamed of where he comes from, that he was born out of a out of a beautiful love affair, that Marion and Ted loved each other. You know, Leo says, well, I'm not a child anymore to be bossed around. He's almost a bit offended that he goes to see her and steal. She cannot see him as an equal, really. She cannot see him as the same as her. She has to ask him to do something, that she has to use him to get what she wants, that there's something that she wants and he needs to do it for her. And so he can never really escape that, but it seems like at the end of the film that he is going to do it because it shows him back at the estate at Brandom Hall and he's walking across the lawn as though he's going to go meet the grandson and his younger self is there with him and takes his hand and they're walking across the lawn. And I, I thought the film, I mean, I guess some people would see it as sort of sentimental, you know, him holding the hand of his child self But I think we're always, many of us are always sort of haunted by our child selves, by the little child that we were, the little child inside of us, especially if something difficult or or traumatic happened when we were children, that there is this part of us that can never fully let go of that child and feeling like that child deserved better or deserved something else that it was that he or she was never given. And so to me, I thought it was a really beautiful way and a poetic way to talk about the way that the past and present are entwined. You know, he's literally holding the hand of his child self. You know, the the fingers are interlaced and it's really like the way that the past and present are intertwined and you can't really pull them apart, at least not for Leo and not for me. Our childhood is just so much a part of ourselves. And like I said at the very beginning, I think about my childhood all the time. I think about who I was. I think about the dreams that I had. I think about the potential I had, what I wanted to be. And I've just been thinking a lot how I haven't become any of those things. And I wish I could let go of the shame of not becoming all the things that I wanted to become. And I've got to thinking lately, well, maybe I wasn't supposed to be those things. You know, I always wanted to be a writer when I was younger, and that hasn't really happened. There's just things that I dreamed of, things that I wanted for myself. And because of the things that I went through as a child, those things have been impossible because I have found it difficult to be close to people. I have found it difficult to connect with people. I have distanced myself from people because of the different experiences that I've had that I've talked about in this episode. Maybe, you know, my class consciousness feeling like I never fit in. In my episodes on, uh, you know, some recent episodes, I talked about what it's like to be a woman who is seen as ugly and unattractive. I talked about my struggle with my body and my weight in my recent episode about real women have curves. So the way that people have treated me based on my looks, that's affected me. It's made it hard for me to get closer to people. Feeling like at a very young age, I was exposed to adult things that I was not prepared for um, has made me sort of recoil from people. It's made it hard for me to get close to people. 
losing my father at a young age when I was 16, not having any support system with that, issues with my family. So do you see how the past is this very real thing? You know, I list out those things, but every single one of those things happened to me. And they happened to me at an age when I was still growing. I was still forming. I was still, you know, coming into being. And so every time I went through one of those experiences or many others, that it sort of dented me in a way, or it broke things off of me, or it chipped things off of me. It took something away from me. It impacted me in particular and unique ways. And it made me who I am today for better or for worse, right? And for you listening, you'll have your own set of experiences, your own memories, your own childhood traumas, possibly. And those things have affected you. And I think for Leo, that experience that summer of 1900, I mean, this is why it haunts me. This is why the film and the novel haunt me so much is that idea of this thing that happens at this particular time in your life and you are completely undone by it. You are completely traumatized by it. You are never the same and it colors and it taints everything that happens afterwards. And I think that's what happened to Leo. And he says as much at the end of the film. It's a beautifully written film, I think. He talks about how, and that's also why I love this film, is because I think the film really explores that. It explores childhood and lost innocence. You know, all the themes of the book, but it just does it in a really beautiful and poetic way. And older Leo is talking about how If not for that summer in 1900, his life would be completely different. He says that he wouldn't be so alone. He says that he is, quote, a foreigner in a world of emotion, ignorant of its language. The truth is, I've been too afraid to live, unquote. And I would say that's been the struggle of my life up to this point, is the fear that I feel, the fear that was put into me when my father died. Because I think when you face death at a young age, at least for some of us, I can only speak for myself. It terrified me. It absolutely shook my foundation. It's the reason I struggle with agoraphobia and anxiety, is I do fear the world. I do fear everything almost. I I feel like I am constantly scared and afraid. And that it has completely debilitated me in every possible way, that fear. The fear of people, the fear of getting close to people, the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of the world, the fear of the things that happen every day in the world, the fear of loss, the fear of violence, the fear of catastrophe, the fear of something bad happening, even if it's irrational. I mean, I talked about in one episode how after my father died, I was terrified of planes when planes would come over uh, my house, like, and I would hear them, I would become hysterical. I would have panic attacks. Um, I struggled with panic a lot because I was just terrified. I was so scared because my life was completely bulldozed. I was obliterated by what happened. I just feel so afraid all the time and so scared. And my life has become defined by fear and by having to 
distance myself and isolate myself from other people and from the world because I just feel so debilitated by fear. And I see that in Leo, that there is this fear in him that he is afraid to get close to people. He's afraid to be vulnerable. He's afraid of life, afraid of the world, afraid of what could happen, right? He's just never fully able to escape his childhood and to escape this experience with Marion and Ted. It has such huge ramifications for him, but it doesn't feel that way for Marion, You know, he goes to meet Marion and she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand how her affair with Ted completely destroyed this child. That he is a broken man because of it. I mean, at one point she does say, you know, no one should be alone. Everyone should get married. And she says that including you, Leo, or something like that. She doesn't even really understand the toll that 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 summer in 1900 took on him. She has no idea. She doesn't get it. I mean, to her, it was this golden summer, you know, with the love of her life, you know, being with Ted. And she had every right to do that. I think in many ways, Marion was trying to escape the structures of her life. She was trying to escape the misogyny and the sexism. She was trying to take control over her life through her body and through her sexuality, that her mother is just so tightly trying to control her, control her body, control who she loves, who she marries, where she goes, what she does. The film does a good job, I think, in showing some of that, of showing her pain, her fear, her loneliness, her struggles. But I still am sort of haunted by the way that her and Ted used Leo and did not understand what the consequences of that would be for him and how how um, devastating it would be to his psyche, to his sense of self, to the way that he related to people, to feel like he was not loved, to feel like he was just a pawn. He was just something to be used and manipulated. Well, and, and you can acknowledge that and still say that, you know, Marion was searching for her own agency, you know, and she was trying to be with the man that she loved. And you can certainly have sympathy for Marion and also acknowledge that this was a child and he became part of adult things and took on very adult experiences at an early age that he was not prepared for and that really shattered him and that he can't, he can't live with it. He can't get over it. He just can't do it. And really, they sentenced him to a life devoid of love as a result. That he was never able to love somebody else or to be loved. That's sort of the ultimate tragedy beyond just Ted's death. Because that is a horrible thing that Ted dies in the end. But it's this idea that because Leo was so traumatized and so hurt... And so unable to process and cope with what he witnessed and what he saw and what he felt. And that sense of being used and manipulated and betrayed. Because of that, he was robbed of a life of love. And that in many ways, his life sort of ended before it even began in that summer of 1900. And so I think maybe that's possibly 
that's possibly why The Go-Between remains such a powerful novel is that idea that things from our childhood can be incredibly consequential, incredibly influential, and that we carry those memories, we carry that trauma, we carry that pain with us as we get older. And sometimes time doesn't heal. And sometimes the things that we've been through, the things that I've been through, they don't just disappear. They don't just dissolve. That they they have very real consequences in our minds and in our bodies. And you just think of this little boy and the promise and the potential and how he just felt completely destroyed by what those two people did to him. They may not have meant to. That was not their intention. But that was the result. And because of that, he can't love and he can't be loved. And I don't think he ever will. You know, it just something died in him. Something was taken away. That innocence, that when we lose our innocence, it's like we can never get it back. We can never be who we were before. Our That seismic event. It just rips us apart. There is this line between who we were and who we become. And we can never recover what was taken or what we lost. And I think that's why the story will probably always haunt me. Is that just that profound sense of loss. The loss of a life. The loss of love. The loss of innocence. The loss of people and connection. The loss of believing in other people. It's something I myself struggle with on a daily basis. The deep loneliness of my life, the isolation of my life, and the way that I have played a part in it. You know, that's the thing is that Leo is not completely blameless. You know, Leo could have made different decisions. Maybe he could have tried, but he does play a part in the state of his life to some extent. And I have to look at my own life and look at, well, what what are the decisions that I've made to get to this point? And why, why are things so hard for me? Why is it so difficult for me to cope? Why can't I make different decisions? And you have to look at yourself, right? And when he's in the train with that little boy, it's like that little boy is like, well, why haven't you gotten over it? It's been 50 years, dude. Like, you could have made different decisions. You could have moved on, but he can't move on. Just like I can't move on from my father's death. I mean, that's the core of it for me is that there is this event in my life, the way there is this event in Leo's life, and he can't get over it. He can't move on. The world has moved on. You know, people have moved on. He has not. He's still in some other place. He's still not able to deal with it or to accept it. And I'm in the same place right now in my life. It's been almost 13 years. Why can't I get to a different place with this? Why am I so trapped in this grief? Why? Why? Yeah, the why of it. I don't know. But I think the film does such a beautiful job of, of of telling this story and of making that real to the audience of here is this man who can't get over something. It just 
so deeply changed him and destroyed him that he's never been the same. And I think a lot of us have those experiences in our lives. Well, I've gone on long enough. So I'm going to stop here. This episode has already gotten way too long. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.